Hello and welcome to this special summer edition of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Alex Thomas and today we're talking about the spectre that haunts the British political class during the summer months, the spectre of the party conference. These jamborees of politics run from mid-September to mid-October every year, traditionally starting with the Liberal Democrats, then Labour, the Conservatives and the SNP, and with Green, Plaid Cymru and other party gatherings in the mix too. Most of the public don't spend their late summer days applauding or heckling politicians in conference rooms and stuffy fringe meetings. So what are these events actually like? How do they differ? How does, or should, the media report on them? Do they matter? And should we have them at all? Joining me to discuss this are some brilliant guests with unmatched party conference credentials. Michael Crick is a journalist and author whose CV would take most of this podcast to recite and who has seen it all when it comes to party conferences, 46 years of them. He's currently performing a true public service on Twitter, chronicling party seat selections, follow tomorrow's MPs for the inside track. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Thank you for having me. Marie Leconte is another journalist and author. Her books, Haven't You Heard and Honourable Misfits, are essential insights into how Westminster really works, far removed from dusty politics textbooks. And her journalism at party conferences, and for the rest of the year, is always a must-read. Hello, Marie. Hello. Peter Cardwell is the political editor of Talk Radio, a former special advisor and author of another book that sits prominently on IFG shelves, The Secret Life of Special Advisors, the ones who lurk around the edges of party conference, giving their bosses pep talks while feeding them Mars bars. Hi, Peter. Hello there. And Jill Rutter, an IFG senior fellow, former civil servant, all-round expert on everything to do with government. Welcome, Jill. Hello, Alex. So let's start with the basics. Michael, what are party conferences? Well, party conferences are the vital annual political fora for each of our political parties. It's where ministers or front benchers, MPs, activists, lobbyists, journalists, uh, all sorts of other people meet together, thousands of them, uh, for three or four days and interact. And you, the great thing about a party conference is that you go there, you meet all your old friends, you catch up with all the gossip, but you also meet lots of new people. And more seriously, you go around the fringe. The fringe is much more important than what goes on in the conference. You go around the fringe and you pick up what the, the buzz, what's, what's really new in politics, what's going on. They're also important historically because, you know, if you look, at, look back at party leaders the big speeches they make in their careers are often the ones they've made at their party conference. Brilliant. Thank you. And Marie, what are they like? Uh, Michael's touched on it there, but paint a picture of what's going on. It's always a slightly odd atmosphere because, as you pointed out in the introduction, so everyone keeps talking about, I think, in the weeks leading up to them, just how much they hate them and how much they're not looking forward to being there. Um, and then actually turns up, so, so it, it, it slightly feels like a pressure cooker. So especially, so obviously the Conservatives at the moment, because they're in government, um, but Labour to an extent, um, it is very close. So you have to go through quite a lot of security to get in. And there are only a few buildings, normally indoors, um, where everyone, you know, as Michael said, you know, thousands of people are kind of there in those same rooms together. Um, usually very badly ventilated and always weirdly way too hot or way too cold. Um, so so, so it, it is a, a slightly weird, there's always a slightly weird atmosphere of people who are for the most part a bit hungover or very hungover, in any case very sleep deprived and work actually very long days but also socialise all the time and I think that's one of the main things about conference that you bump into people, you know people you should know all the time you never ever stop talking so it, it sort of starts off when actually usually the first day I think people turn up and they're like oh actually you know what I've spent the past three weeks really talking about how much I hate this but now I'm here I'm quite happy lots of people I know etc 
Um, and by the last day, everyone's just a little bit mad um, and, and it's just quite odd. Um, so, so, yeah, that, I suppose that's kind of how it feels, like lads on tour, um, but with way more panel discussions. <laughs> and, and the odd gal on tour. Exactly. And uh, there's some sort of common themes there. How do they differ between the parties? So I think more importantly, the alcohol and food at Conservative Party conference is way better. <laughs> uh, but no, more seriously, well, I, I think no, the, the serious answer is that um, Conservative conferences are also quite different because no policy gets decided there, whereas Liberal, Liberal Democrats and Labour do decide quite a lot of party policy um, at conference through the members, promotions, etc. Um, apart from that, it's also been, so I, and, and that may be anecdotal, but I've always found Liberal Democrat Conference to be the friendliest one. I'm not sure, it may be because I'm a journalist and they're just always thrilled, especially post-coalition, that some journalists have turned up. <laughs> um, and then I think so the crowds are quite different as well. So Labour will have a lot of activists who are, you know, either either slightly too young or slightly too old, I suppose, and, you know, quite a lot of sandals, quite a lot of men, uh, quite a few people who maybe haven't showered in a while. Um, and, you know, whereas Tories is basically a sort of, you know, sea of men in dark blue suits who look exactly the same somehow with little briefcases. So, so it is, you know, and, and way more lobbyists as well at Tories. So I think the yeah, the, the crowd is definitely different depending on each party. I don't know if I'm being unfair here, Michael. Um, well, uh, on policy, I'd say these days, none of them have any real influence on policy. I mean, there was all that big debate at the Labour conference, what, three or four years ago, under Corbyn about what they were going to do about Brexit. And we spent day after day after day going into this. But, uh, you know, frankly, the party leader and his office decide policy these days in the Labour Party. And so I think it's the same for all of them. And even even the Liberal Democrats, uh, Paddy Ashdown, you know, used to sort of be terrified of them deciding some new policy on legalization of cannabis or whatever but the the, the leadership uh, he, he was able to ignore all of that in terms of the people that go i would argue if you go to a lib dem conference or a labor conference you look around you it's full of you know ordinary people that you you know they might be the people you might meet in the street the conservative party is utterly different you meet that it's full of old people at the conservative party really old people you know people in their 60s 70s 80s and then it's full of young people, young men on the whole, dressed in suits. Now, how many people in their 20s dress in suits unless they work in the city or they are conservative activists? And I often used to say to leading conservatives, you know, you really are giving the terrible image here that, that you know, that you are a breed of people that's totally unlike the population uh, as a whole. But hey, does it really matter? They keep getting re-elected. Right. Peter, first question, were you one of those men in suits? And second question, uh, how do things change if a party's in government or not? Uh, both Marie and uh, uh, Michael just touched on that. But is it different if a party's in government or looks likely to be about to be in government? It's definitely different if a party is in government. I was one of those men in suits, but I was a journalist first when I went to conferences. Uh, I went to all three for a few years, uh, Lib Dem, Labour and Conservative. And then as a special advisor, I went to uh, just the Conservative ones. And I think as a young journalist, they're really, really fascinating because you do have access to a lot of people. It's a sort of hermetically sealed um, bubble of people who are particularly interested in one political party. And it was fascinating. I went to, as a young journalist at Newsnight and Question Time, I went to political party conferences and they were they were really really interesting and I enjoyed them very much even though it was absolutely exhausting I remember coming back from the final one which is always the 
Conservative Party conference after sort of three weeks of doing the conferences, not just the sort of late night drinking and all the rest, but the long days for Newsnight as well, and uh, sleeping, I think, consistently for 16 hours, uh, which is perhaps the longest I've ever slept in one go. Um, But as a special advisor, I absolutely hated them um, because they're just awful. Um, I mean, there's just so many people who want to talk to your boss. You've got to move around the conference center, which is difficult because you don't, you know, they might stop and talk to six or seven different people. You're always running late. There'll be someone who'll say, oh, I remember you came and spoke to us at our local association three years ago. Then there'll be a very important party donor. Then there'll be another MP. And by that stage, you're running late for the next meeting. There are also um, so many people who want to meet at conference, especially journalists who say to government ministers, oh, can we have a half hour coffee at conference? And that's all right. But I just don't really understand why they don't ask for that in London, because they're all in London at the same time if they're lobby journalists. So it, 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 it really, I do think with conferences, if they didn't exist, you probably wouldn't invent them. And Peter, you've pointed out, you've highlighted one of the th- the best things I always thought about party conferences when I was a civil servant um, was that they made special advisors realise just how hard the job of a private secretary was, because that's the job <laughs> that the civil service does the rest of the time. And so well, seeing it, these it, exhausted special advisors return from party conference was always a joy when you were a private secretary. Well, in, in, in fairness, um, private secretaries, yes, they do work very hard, most of them. And uh, But a private office is, certainly the ones I worked in, were sort of 10 or 15 people, whereas it's just you. And especially if you have, not that I would want to uh, libel um, Jonathan Cain, Lord Cain, but if you have a, a co-special advisor, as I did at the Northern Ireland office, you had absolutely no interest in administration, organisation, diary management, moving people. Also, the other thing is that I, I have a really, really bad sense of direction and um, when I, I did conferences first as a special advisor with my old boss, with James Broganshire, he had protection officers, the police protection officers, whose job it was to know where we were going. And we were in uh, the Birmingham ICC, which is the world's most confusing building. And then two years later, uh, it was just us because James didn't have uh, protection officers when he was the, the, house, the housing secretary. And he kept saying, where are we going? And the answer always was, I don't know because it's the most it's the most confusing building. It's literally you know room fifty two. Room fifty two is beside stage six, beside uh, conference center B. You know, and it's and, and there's the hotel which is linked to it, and there's a there's a kind of a, a bridge between them. But then you're in the fourth floor in the hotel, but you're in the third floor in the ICC. It is the most unbelievably confusing building, and I just right. pa- panicked the whole the- time. The campaign to redesign the ICC oh, yeah, starts here. Marie. Incredibly briefly, that you completely agree with Peter. The first time I had a conference, no, second time I had a conference at the Birmingham ICC on the last day, I had to go to a panel. I was running late and I just did not know where I was going. So I was like, fine, I'm just going to ask someone who works here to give me the direction. The directions are so complicated, you know, so properly like go up half a floor, turn that, you know, retrace your steps for 17 seconds, etc. I nearly cried. I genuinely was on the verge of t- um, while laughing at the same time kind of hysterically that it, it is I think impossible to put into words how confusing that building is which helps no one it's right next to a canal it actually is rather <laughs> rather a nice setting if you go to the best it is Jill you were a civil servant for a long time uh, and then started going to party conferences have they ever reduced you to tears well as a civil servant the thing that you're sort of uh, you have very mixed emotions about party conferences and actually I did go to a party conference very briefly when I was private secretary to a minister during a spending round and it was all a bit of a nightmare I went to take some papers to him so I was it seems very weird now but this was a long and more a long time ago in a more innocent time the only place I was allowed to go was his bedroom to take him these papers so I went to the bedroom, took the papers. Uh, but the worry there was that he was doing lots of deals with his colleagues and was completely unsupervised by civil servants. Because obviously, 
as a civil servant, you're not allowed to go anywhere near anything political, lest you are tainted, because obviously we're purists of driven snow and never have anything to do with any of this nasty party political stuff, because we are, as we know, non-partisan in the civil service. So they were like a bit like a forbidden fruit. They were a sort of time when you were a bit worried in anticipation that uh, particularly if you were in, as I was, the Chief Secretary's Office in the Treasury, that lots of spending pledges would be made in those speeches. So we were sitting there in the civil service a bit worried. But then if you move on, uh, when I was in number 10, obviously as a civil servant, I wasn't allowed to go, but it was a very big event for the other people in number 10 and huge amounts of worry about the prime minister's speech at party conference. I have to say, uh, I was in John Major's policy unit. It wasn't perhaps his most natural place to go. John Major is brilliant in a room of 10 people and will wow them all, go up to party conference numbers, perhaps not his biggest strength. But then now I go you know, from Institute for Government, I've just discovered what inordinate fun they are. So I'm definitely sort of on the uh, fun level of this. But it's also so interesting because I think actually, it's one of my insights is that I think British civil servants should be allowed to go and observe party conferences because the thing you really see is you see ministers who are quite often quite fish out of water when we get them in departments. That's not their natural habitat. That's not what they've done before. And then we go and say, not sure I really see the point of this person. But actually, it's really interesting to see them on panels, interacting with their activists, schmoozing around. And it's really interesting to get some sense of what that activist base was. I know in 2018, as Theresa May was trying to piece together her checkers deal, we went to the Conservative Party conference. We knew that the deal was in a bit of trouble and was a bit of opposition, but it was seeing a, the fact you couldn't get in to see Jacob Rees-Mogg unless you were almost prepared to camp in something like the Wimbledon queue. But secondly, the number of Michael's young men who were adorning their smart suits with Chuck Checkers badges that you realise this really is a huge problem yeah. in the Conservative in- Party. Interesting. Yeah, Speaking of course, of- lots of civil servants do go to party conferences. But they're foreign civil servants who go from all our embassies. They don't seem to be perfectly tainted by the experience. Peter, and then I want to come back to Michael. Peter. Yeah. Speaking of the 2018 Conservative Party conference, um, I'm pretty sure that was the one where Theresa May uh, famously lost her voice. And uh, I was actually backstage because I had to wait for my boss, James Brogenshire, then the Northern Ireland Secretary, to get in a car to go to the airport. And Pearl Theresa May, who has struggled through that speech, was um, sort of glad-handing everybody off the stage and then backstage, she sort of finally had a sigh of relief. And I was the first person she saw. And I sort of went, well, nice to see you, Prime Minister. You know, it was just, it was just, there was, no, there was nothing to say. I'm surprised right. she didn't resign on the spot. If you well, 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 in, well, indeed, well, indeed. Um, so Michael then what, what about conferences a platform for talent um, we, we've got the yes, image exactly. of William Hague in our minds from 1977 or uh, David Cameron and David Davis fighting it out in the 2005 yeah, leadership I mean, contest d- William Hague famously uh, made a speech to the Conservative conference I think what 1977 and I remember when he came up to Oxford a couple of years later I was president of the union and he had turned up in the union, and all the conservatives, believe it or not, were jealous of him <laughs> and were ter- determined to do him down. And I asked him to make a speech from the floor in the union. 
and they all hissed. And I said, give him a chance. He hasn't spoken yet. And and that was his big break. And then Cameron famously, um, uh, unlike now, the, the, the contenders for the Conservative leadership in 2005, each had to make a speech to the conference. And Cameron did his without notes, off, uh, seemingly off the cuff. But of course, rehearsed and and wowed them in a way that David Davies didn't, and that it, it's reckoned made the difference. But it's always been the the opportunity for talent, and of course, well, sometimes it's some you know young Liberal Democrat like Liz Truss, uh, <laughs> way back in nineteen ninety four, calling for the abolition of the monarchy. We um, are recording this, I should say, during the Conservative the, Party leadership during, contest. We're recording this during the Conservative indeed, Party leadership. We don't indeed. know if she's our prime minister. Uh, well, you know, by the time it goes, actually, may well be. Uh, exactly. Uh, front runner for the uh, conservative leadership, but um, uh, and and she even took part in one of the late night liberal Democrat or liberal uh, you know festive uh, 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 on stage events that uh, they do, and it it really is an opportunity for them to make a name for themselves either in the conference, more likely on the fringe. I think the conference hall these days matters less and less. It's what goes on in the fringes that matters. The fringe meetings, but also going around schmoozing. If you were a young you know, if you were an ambitious young candidate, you were trying to find a seat, that would be, I, I would go along to a conference and you would meet, uh, you know, bigwigs from local associations. Although the trouble is these days, it's very expensive to go to a party conference because particularly for the Conservatives, because they always have their conferences in Manchester and Birmingham where accommodation is, is expensive. In the days when it was in Blackpool where you could get a and b for next to nothing, it was much easier for impecunious uh, uh, conservative activists to go mm. than it is now. Marie? Um, so actually, just briefly before I make my actual serious point, I will say that um, last time we, it was in Manchester, I struggled so much finding accommodation that I could pay for myself as a freelancer that I ended up in a room where the shower was directly above the toilet, uh, which is <laughs> generally one of the low points of my life to date. Um, but no, so more seriously, I think there's another layer there as well if you're a kind of as, aspiring rising star, especially a member of parliament. So I think, you know, one of the main things about conference is that what I call the seven minute chat. So I think you do spend your day, whoever you are, just talking to people for seven minutes, one after the other, etc. And I do think that because there are quite a lot of drinks receptions in the evening, which we've not really quite talked about yet. So organised by um, media organisations, by think tanks, etc., where the entire lobby is going to be, a lot of MPs are going to be, etc. So I think if you're someone who's quite ambitious and would like the press to like you, what you can do is actually go to all these events. And, and, and if you can prove to people that you can actually be quite interesting and fun to talk to, um, then, you know, your fortune may well uh, change for the better very quickly. Because, again, so many people um, at conference, I'm sorry to say, are unbelievably dull. So I think that, you know, if you can just go talk to a journalist and say, you know, have a really fun chat with them, fun, interesting, etc., they will remember you and they will probably think of you more kindly in the future. There we go. So that helps massively hints, as well. Hints and tips for aspiring, sharp-suited uh, young men. Can I can I ask a bit about, um, Marie and, and, and Michael and Peter, about how the media cover conferences? I remember as a really sort of nerdy teenager coming home from school and watching hours of coverage, not just to the Tory and Labour conferences, but the, the Trade Union Congress conference was uh, was was on the TV. How's, how's, how's all of that changed and has it made them less important? I mean, Marie first. Uh, so I think conference direct conferences are absolute hell to cover as a journalist. So I've done it in three different roles. So the first one as a diarist, so effectively a gossip columnist. Second one as a news reporter, and third one um, as I am now as a just feature, so like columnist writer person. Um, and actually, as a news person, it's horrendous because again, every single one of your colleagues is there in a very small room. If there's a fringe that looks a bit interesting, at least seven other journalists are going to be there. You've got your desk back in London convinced that you're just on a really merry piss up. So they really want story after story after story to convince them, you know, that they were right to spend all that money on you going. So actually, and I think that that's why, and I'm sure we'll get into that 
um, in a bit. That's why there, there's that weird game of, you know, every speech must, must announce some sort of policy, whatever it is, just so journalists have something to write about. So I think it's, again, as a gossip columnist, I have to say it was an absolute dream because obviously, you know, <laughs> Um, many things happen at conference. Feature is tremendous as well, because I think a lot of what happens is con- at conference is about picking up the mood of a party, what's going on, as we were talking about earlier, you know, which fringes are very well attended, etc. So that's fascinating. But, you know, most political journalists are fundamentally news journalists, and it is hell if you cover news. On the question of mood, generally, a party conference starts off with the, the, the party members being a bit nervous, a bit, uh, you know, feeling a bit depressed. And they constantly say, well, what do you think the mood is? What do you think the mood is? Generally, when you've only been there for half an hour. Um, and as the week goes on, the mood picks up. It's very rare that a party comes away from its conference and things have gone badly, that they're, you know, they're down. The, the one exception, I suppose, is when uh, Ian Duncan Smith, uh, when was it, 2003, I think, uh, made a dreadful speech to the, the conference in Blackpool. I think the Conservatives were worse off as a result of that. But generally, and this indeed is the purpose of the conferences, partly from the party's point of view, it picks them up. And generally, a party finishing with the leader's speech will pick up in the polls and everybody will be cheered up. That, uh, and you know that is an important purpose of a party conference. From the media's point of view, I'd say, look, there's so much going on in a party conference, so many people to meet that you're bound to get good stuff and don't follow the pack, go the other direction. That's always been my philosophy and you'll you'll come up with stories. They may not be headline-breaking stories, but they can, you can have a, a hell of a lot of fun, particularly if you're a television journalist and there's, there's so much going on visually and all the, you know, not only the fringe meetings, but all the stalls, there's 300 stalls or so on. The other thing I would say is you can, you can see which parties are on their way at a party conference, like, I remember the 1996 Labour conference. There must have been 10,000 people or some ridiculous number there, mostly lobbyists, mostly people from, you know, corporate Britain, very few, not that many Labour activists. But you knew that Blair was on his way at the 1996 Labour conference, even if the people at the top of the Labour Party didn't really realise it themselves. And that's been true subsequently. And I think this autumn, it'll be interesting to see how many people, how many uh, companies have booked stalls at the Labour conference compared with the Conservative. I would have thought it's, it's just about parity, whereas for quite a while now, you haven't come across many uh, private company stalls at the Labour mm. conference. Interesting. I, I think there's a quote from one B. Johnson about the uh, attractiveness of people at conferences uh, increasing uh, the closer parties were to, to government. But let's talk a bit about whether party conferences change government policy. Jill, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Talk about sort of preparing for conference in government uh, and, and how does that uh, happen? So it's, it's quite awkward because civil servants aren't supposed to be working on things that are going into party. You don't work on the party conference speech. Um, but sort of Treasury does sort of try to find out, I think, about whether some very expensive commitments are about to be made. Um, back in my early days, uh, we used to do things like uh, order the Bank of England to change interest rates during a party conference if it was looking that uh, the Prime Minister might have a slightly rough reception. Uh, but obviously, the Bank of England independence has changed all that uh, to a different era. But what is really interesting is that policy that gets announced at conference doesn't go through normal process. And I think really the sort of, you know, prime example that will be used in the textbooks forevermore are some of those fantastic quotes we have from Philip Hammond in the Minister's Reflect 
interview about when he discovered what the party's Brexit policy was in the uh, in that famous 2016 party conference when Theresa May decided to get some stuff out early, announced the timetable for triggering Article 50, Article 50 and announced, even though she didn't seem to really understand that these were the implications of what she was announcing, that the UK was leaving the single market and the customs union. Apparently, she came back afterwards and people were pointing out that she de facto left the customs union and the single market. And she was saying, no, 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 that's not the implication. So we said you're going to do this, you're running independent trade policy, you're doing this, you're doing that. You know, basically, that's the signal you've sent. Uh, and a lot of officials, people like Ollie Robbins, weren't shown, you know, Ivan Rogers in Brussels didn't know exactly what she was going to announce there. And I think that's really difficult when you get politicians going out with some big, bold announcement to rouse the faithful without perhaps having done adequate due diligence I remember on some, what, they, uh, what they're doing. I remember you some remember very fraught email chains that day. But um, uh, Peter, uh, how much of a shadow did uh, uh, party conferences cast over your summer when you were a special advisor? Um, pretty big shadow. And I think that the invitations started coming in kind of Sort of even as early as really June, July, and you just getting the diary together, managing the diary, knowing that moving between venues is quite difficult. Um, I think I only really mastered it the fourth year I did it as a special advisor. And by that stage, I'd sort of uh, everything that could possibly be been thrown at me conference wise was. It also depends how much, I mean, if your minister wants to have an absolutely full day or alternatively want some time to themselves to do some some box work or to uh, to do other things or to socialize or have lunch with people. Also, um, depending on the department you're in, when I was in justice, for example, our announcement was the the main announcement of one of the conferences that I was at in in, uh, in 2019 was the was the major announcement. Um, There's a lot of uh, emphasis a lot of input from number 10 and uh, there had to be a break it had to be sort of very carefully briefed and all the rest of it so that was that was sort of quite a stress on its own also i was working at that stage with a very good but sort of slightly inexperienced co-special advisor so i basically wrote the whole speech which is the first time i'd, I'd really written the speech we had other people to write them in different departments that i'd been in so that was a whole process in itself although i actually kind of enjoyed that and got i uh, got a couple of reasonable jokes in it but um it was it was definitely it loomed large, really, from, I would say, the middle of June, um, and, and you had to make quite judicious choices. And, of course, the people you say no to all never take no for an answer and keep banging on your door and say, well, I really, I think it's really, really important I see the Secretary of State uh, for, for a half an hour meeting or something, and you just sort of have to keep keep saying no. Also, the um, civil service, as, as has been said, sort of get involved, but sort of don't, and you can kind of cost things, but not really. And also, you, you you ask them just before you go can you, for. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because I was going to ask about that. Jill, Jill pointed this sort of pure picture of uh, the mm. civil service, which I'm not sure she quite believed. Um, uh, what, what, how how do how, how, no, no, that's true. How how do special advisors and ministers use the civil service in that way? Well, there, there's a couple of ways. One is that you request an update of all policies just before you go to conference and you say look i just want the the policy pack to be completely updated and um, so you have it so you can refer to it when you're there because you don't have civil service support when you're there also in terms of policies itself you i mean we would certainly discuss this is what we're thinking of announcing at conference is this viable is this something we can do um and actually look it's government policy that's that's fine uh, where it's announced i suppose is is the matter uh, where it is and and um 
there's not I suppose there's not a huge amount of political aspect to the one that we, the big policy that we did announce in regard to uh, of the Ministry of Justice in, re, in regard to increasing sentences. I mean that's sort of a purely political operation or a purely justice operational thing rather than necessarily a, a big political policy, but it was very very popular. So the civil service were were pretty well briefed, I suppose, on what we were going to do, but obviously sworn to secrecy as well because it was uh, something that we wanted to to have a big splash in the papers. And we with that particular thing, I was quite proud. We got got sort of the front page of the Daily Mail and seventy six percent approval rating it was actually the the most uh, approved policy of the conf- of that particular conference. But it it can be tricky, it can be difficult, and civil servants do kind of tiptoe around it and it just comes back to the fundamentals of the civil service which i always uh sort of banged on about quite a lot which is the difference between a civil servant who understands politics and the political situation that the governing party is in and the civil servant who doesn't is a huge gap because um i i mean i work with many brilliant civil servants uh, some of whom, you know, most of whom I wouldn't have a clue how they vote, nor would I ever dream of asking. But the ones who got the politics and understood how important conference was, and understood how how difficult things were politically at some stages, well, that that those were the ones who really, really properly were the ones who I rated. I mean, I think you've got to understand that for most ministers and shadow ministers, the party conference speech is the most important speech yeah. they'll make that year. More Absolutely. important than, than what they say in the House of Commons mm-hmm. or elsewhere, and, and particularly actually, that. Yeah, particularly and, the leader. Yeah, and, and just very briefly, it's the one they really want to make as well. When I worked with uh, Robert Buckland, for example, it was his first uh, conference speech because only cabinet ministers get to make conference speeches. Sometimes not all cabinet ministers get to make conference speeches, although although they usually do. And it was his first time uh, making a conference speech. And look, you know, the opening of the legal year was a big thing. He, he the state opening of parliament, things like that. But I can honestly say the first time. Robert spoke at party conference was just such a big thing for him. He'd been working to that moment really for 25 years and he was so proud of, of, of that moment and really it, it was very, very important to him. And I, I kind of had to realise that as I was writing the speech, you know, it had to be of that standard that he required sort of thing. And sometimes the people are relegated and get no speech, yeah. which yeah. shows you they're standing in the party. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. I was going to say, though, I, I do something what I find fascinating, actually, about the speeches at conference is that for some of them, for some of the cabinet ministers, their entire goal is to not get noticed at all. Because I still remember really clearly, so 2016 I'd been, so I was doing news at the time and I'd been assigned a few speeches to do and, you know, write up. And there's one I watched and I was like, this is, you know, and I read the transcript and read it again. And then I actually went to, I, I cornered the special advisor for that department. And I was like, I'm sorry, this is not a very professional question for me to ask, but what was the line in that speech? I swear, I just could not find the line. And he was like, well done. You realised <laughs> there is no line that we do not want any coverage of this. I've done my job very well. And he was incredibly smug because I was like, I actually could not write a story about this. There is absolutely nothing whatsoever in this. And he was like, yes, you're welcome. Uh, that will be in the uh, the handout uh, and they're going to say this in a speech and suddenly it won't be in the speech. Uh, and then you'll later hear about a row that went on behind the scenes between the minister or the shadow minister and the leader's office about what should or shouldn't be in the speech. I mean, I suppose a very good example of that is Starmer's speech on Brexit. When was that? 2018, roughly. And I can't even remember what it was. He com- I think it was he committed to a referendum, didn't he? Uh, and uh, much to the dismay of... Um, uh, of Corbyn's office. And and there was a Conservative minister around about the same time who I think bounced the party into some policy by announcing something that wasn't, uh, wasn't hadn't actually... Uh, and there was, uh, been, was it Ed Miliband who forgot a section of the economic section of his speech? Well, he, that he, that's that... right. He, he, he did try to do the trick of uh, learning his speech off by heart yeah, and missed out the whole section on immigration, which at that point 
Well, the deficit was wasn't it? Really deficit. I think he didn't mention the deficit at all, yes. which at yeah. the time and, was rather frowned upon. And that that is a disgrace, uh, as uh, Miss Joss would say. Jill, you wanted to come in. I was just going to say <clears> that when when uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I think how much people want to do the speech really depends on who they are. Because uh, when I worked in the Chancellor's office a long time ago. Uh, we were very, very, very nervous about the conference speech, and we were very nervous that Which the chancellor? chancellor. This was Geoffrey House. This was a <laughs> long time ago because the economy was going very badly. Positions uh, were going very badly, and uh, so we were really nervous that there wouldn't be any sort of standing ovation because you know you people used to measure the success of the speech by the length of the standing ovation. So the people organised the conference, and I think this now always happens organised that the Chancellor would be the last speech before lunch, which meant the delegates had to get up because otherwise they wouldn't get their lunch. And so it would look at least as though they were giving the Chancellor an ovation as he gave them a sort of another set of slightly grim economic news. Uh, so I think not everyone, those perhaps that have a lot of other opportunities to <laughs> make speeches don't prize party conference in perhaps the same way. Well, also, I think some if you others. just want to be seen as a you know safe pair of hands and someone who is you know re- reliable and can just give a speech that is very boring, does not get covered, but crucially does not get any kind of controversy, I think that is also a weirdly important part of conference. But- that ministers being able to say to their leaders, look, I am perfectly good filler. I know where I stand. I know what my goal, you know, my role is in this cabinet. Well, so- but it's worth remembering some of the speeches that aren't in the hall, but outside the hall. So for years and years and years in the in the teens, Boris Johnson would turn up on the Monday afternoon. We journalists would rush down to the station to film him coming off the train. There'd be a great scrum as he came off the platform, following him back to the conference. He would then do a speech to Conservative home or some, uh, I think it was them, and that would get about a thousand people in a fringe meeting. And uh, and then he would do a speech to the conference the next day, and then he'd go back to London. And he would have, you know, done his bit to wreck David Cameron's uh, conference. Tony Benn was much the same in the 1980s. And Tony Benn would do, you know, about 16 speeches uh, all around the fringe meeting uh, during the course uh, of the week. It's often the fringe speeches where people are a bit freer and they can say nasty things about each other uh, that are much more important. The other thing we, we should discuss, and maybe it's on your agenda, I don't know, is the, the role of in leadership. Because uh, mm. many conferences, you're big questions about can so-and-so survive as leader? And many conferences have been dominated by this big leadership question, most notably 1963 when Macmillan was ill. And uh, it became the whole conference became a you know a leadership uh, show, uh, uh, opportunity for the candidates, and that's presumably because they're such a critical part of the rhythm of the year. So I do want to sort of move us on to the big question uh, to to finish off with, which is whether we should scrap these as anachronisms, uh, waste of time, distorting politics and the the media, um, uh, too much focus on this one point in the year, or are they a sort of essential part of democracy connecting with with members? I'm going to uh, give uh, Peter the first uh, first shot at the uh, case, I suspect, for the opposition. Well, I'm actually going to disappoint you, I'm afraid, Alex, because ah. um, even though I hate them, and even <laughs> though I find them just a bit much and... I don't know. I just, I, I just had such a traumatic experience as a special advisor. There's a whole chapter in my book about them, um, which uh, people earlier talked about. Lads on tour. The chapter is called Spads on tour, um, and uh, I, I, I just, I really, really dislike them. But I, I think, do you know what? If you're an activist, I think you've got to remember that if you're an activist, especially a young activist, you're probably paying the same amount as going for on a foreign holiday. You've got to pay for the pass itself. You've got to pay for all the accommodation, food, and everything. 
And I mean, I think we're we're guilty as journalists, or or in my case, former special advisor, of sort of slightly seeing it as a bit of a jolly. A lot of things are laid on for you. A lot of dinners and drinks and receptions and all the rest of it. However, if you're a party activist, it's actually really, really exciting, important, and in many cases expensive to go to and seeing the. I mean, I, I saw Theresa May speak and and uh, and um, Boris Johnson speak. You know, dozens if not hundreds of times. Whereas if you are a party activist, it's maybe the one time of the year where you can be in the same room as, as your political hero, or you can, you know, you can stand and get that selfie with Marc Francois if you particularly want to. Um, and I think that we've got to remember that for some people, they are actually really important um, um, uh, for activists. Whereas mm-hmm. even though I dislike them, and even though I have to go to them as a journalist now, um, I, I, I would, in, in my ideal world, they wouldn't exist. But I, I appreciate for many, many other people, they are important. Far too subtle for me, Peter. But anyway, Marie. Um, so I was just going to say, agree with Peter, but make a slightly more cynical point as well, which is that a lot of the party activists in any party are the ones who, you know, get up early in the morning, deliver the leaflets, you know, do the, all the hard work of campaigning entirely unpaid. So I think that it yeah. is actually quite wise for the parties to say, but you get the reward of, yeah, again, getting a selfie with either, you know, Preet Patel or Angela Rayner once a year or drinking in the same bar as the shadow cabinet, etc. So I think even cynically, it is quite a good idea. But uh, no, so, uh, and actually, that's a very good point from Marie, because um, my first boss, James Brogenshire, always reminded me, he said, if you are paid at all in politics, if you receive any monies, or either as a councillor, as an MP, whatever, you're at the top of a very large tree. And most, even though there are fewer of them these days, most most parties are based on volunteers. And you've got to remember that. And once you lose that connection, then you're, you're, you're going to go and do things that you shouldn't do. And I think that it's interesting, the party conference is one of the rare times where actually um, frontline politicians are forced to speak to activists. Of course, they do in their own uh, in their own uh, local parties and so on, but from right around the country. So that, that that's actually something quite useful that we haven't touched on as well. Mm-hmm. Marie, um, briefly, and then I'll do a oh, quick yes, round. Yes, I was going to say, so yeah, no, uh, in answer to your original question, I think my compromise, which I wrote about during the pandemic, but no one listened. I'm shocked, shocked, <laughs> I tell you. Um, I think two days. I think conference season should still exist, but I think every party should do exactly two days, let's say a Sunday and a Monday, because at the moment the main ones are three and a half days, and that's just too long. So I think two days, you can still get the activists in the room with the people, you can get some speeches, journalists, et cetera, et cetera, but shorter. Jill? I think it's a really interesting thing here about the nature of our politics because Peter and Maria are absolutely right that these are clearly very important events for activists but I think we're seeing this now play out through the conservative leadership battle is what role do we really want the sort of rather narrow self-selecting band of activists to have both in selecting our prime minister that's a bit of a debate of some people saying should that go back to just being a thing to MPs and how big an influence should they and their views, in a sense, have on policy? And I think it's quite interesting sort of reflecting that these are occasions for throwing out red meat to activists can sometimes get you, you know, go very badly wrong if you're someone like John Major and Tory Central Office then spin your back to basic speech in a way you didn't perhaps quite intend it. But I think it's really interesting about what do we think? Because activists are very uh, quite untypical. They have, you know, some of the work that uh, that we people have done with using the Bridge Election Survey suggests mm-hmm. that the people, the activists, the members are the people whose views are potentially quite a long way out of kilter, yeah. both with MPs, so they drag the MPs towards them, and with voters. Yeah, Look, I mean, Michael, I think we know you're in favour, but why do they, why do they matter? 
Well, they matter for the for the activist point that uh, has been made. But I would say to Jill, if you're not going to give activists a role, how are MPs and party leaders ever going to emerge or be chosen? Are they going to choose themselves? Uh, or are you going to transform our politics and say, OK, well, we're going to, reg- as they do in America, we're going to register, we're going to have c- registers of Conservative supporters, Lib Dem supporters, Labour supporters and so on, and let them choose uh, who the party leadership should be. So you do, unless you transform it all, you, you, you've got to have that role for activists. And the problem we've got right now is that if you got rid of the party conferences, and frankly, some parties couldn't afford it because there's huge income to be made, which we haven't discussed from, from party conferences in terms of, uh, you know, of, of not only getting people to pay but having stalls and so on um then uh, th- then what would be left of the parties mm. there's their withering mm. at the local mm. level and i just think we need to do all we can to keep parties sustain parties mm. they've got their faults mm. but without them uh, we would be in deep deep trouble as a democracy clarion call the um uh, final question then we've got two particularly interesting uh conferences coming up this year a new conservative leader will be at the tory one uh prime minister's debut and labor will be starting to set out their stall for the next election what are your predictions well, my predictions are that uh, everybody will be a bit nervous. As I said earlier, everybody will be a bit nervous as the week starts and everybody will come away saying, what a wonderful conference that was. Uh, we're on our way to winning the general election. Whether anybody will remember the conference may depend on just one line, just a few words in probably the leader's speech. I always ask after a leader's speech, I ask the, the delegates, I say, so what was the memorable line from that speech? And most of them can't think of anything. But when they can think of something, that's then a speech that not just makes the, the political weather for 2022, but goes down in history. The lady's not for turning. Marie? Um, I predict, which is in many ways a coward's prediction, um, that the Labour Party is going to find something entirely pointless to infight about because they will panic <laughs> about doing quite well. And what the left does when it does quite well is that it panics and then it just does some infighting about something entirely pointless that will ultimately overshadow the good stuff or bad stuff or whatever that's announced in the speeches. Joe? I think what will be really interesting will be to see at the Conservative Party conference uh, how much of a break is this with the sort of Boris Johnson in a sense he sort of got away with it as the darling of the conference. I think it would be very interesting to see the relationship of the membership to the new leader because quite a lot of those members think the parliamentary party and the prime minister himself keeps on saying that, that it's a parliamentary party that's got rid of him, not the, necessarily the members. So I think it would be really interesting to see whether the new leader earns the sort of loyalty and how they do that with the, with the membership. It would be really interesting as well to see who actually looks good from the new cabinet because we'll have a reconstructed government there. So it'll be quite the sort of talent parade, I think, at the Conservative Party Conference to see whether they do indeed look like uh, people who might plausibly win a fifth term or whether actually every corporation will be at the Labour Party Conference <laughs> the next year. You're right, Jill. I think it will be, the it will, will, will there be a Johnsonite rebellion that, that lasts for years, like a sort of Jacobite movement. Mm. Will uh, there be a my, nightmare Johnson fringe? Yeah, indeed. Oh. Uh, will, he, will he turn up on the Monday and go back <laughs> yeah. on the Tuesday morning like he used to do? Marie not hiding her feelings there. Sorry, but Peter. Passenger. You did not mean for that sound to come out of my mouth. I'm very sorry. Peter. 
Yes, I think that is an absolutely uh, great question in terms of whether Boris Johnson actually turns up. I mean, it's fascinating actually seeing from my own perspective at talk radio where so much of the media was sort of dancing in Boris Johnson's grave and actually a lot of our viewers and listeners really, really... Um, really really uh sad that he had gone and uh looking at his achievements and all the rest of it so that's going to be fascinating how the uh, how the new leader has an impact or is or is there his or her speech received really well and also from neighbor's perspective i would imagine there'll be sort of yet another relaunch of keir starmer sort of saying this is him setting out a stall to be prime minister we're gonna we're gonna finally get to know keir starmer and I sort of th- think that, you know, we, we've had a number of those speeches. And uh, as Marie says, the, the left will be tearing themselves apart about something we haven't even predicted yet. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Michael Crick, Marie LeConte, Peter Cardwell and Jill Rutter. And thank you all for listening. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. And do give us a review. And don't forget to visit our website at www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Loads of things to read about politics, government and how to do it differently. You'll also find all the details on a range of great events that we'll be hosting and our party conference programme. Yes, we have a vested interest. I hope you're enjoying your summer. And if you're a politician or an advisor or a journalist, that the party conference spectre hasn't ruined the holiday. But hey, there's always next year. Next year.